You're listening to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Leah Walton. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. Thank you for joining us as we talk with the people and learn more about the work being done here at NTSB. Welcome to episode 52 of Behind the Scene at NTSB. Today, Leah and I are excited to welcome back to the podcast, Jeff Marcus, the chief of NTSB's Safety Recommendations Division, Jana Price, a National Resource Specialist in the NTSB Office of Research and Engineering. And for the first time, we're happy to welcome Dennis Collins, a Senior Human Performance Investigator in the Office of Highway Safety, for a discussion um, about drowsy driving. This week is Drowsy Driving Prevention Week, and so we are excited to have them um, talking with us today about some of the recommendations NTSB has made around this issue, um, OSA, and the importance of fatigue management. Welcome back, Jeff and Jana, and welcome for the first time, Dennis. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. As we uh, get going, we always give our guests an opportunity to introduce themselves or reintroduce themselves if they've been on the podcast before. So I'm going to go round robin and ask you each to give a high level uh, perspective for our listeners about where you came from before the NTSB, what you specialize in, and what you do here at the NTSB. So I'm going to start with Jeff Marcus. Hi there. I uh, started my career in safety with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. I left there and went to the FAA where I worked at the Civil Aerospace Medical Laboratory where I did not do very much with fatigue research there, but many of the FAA's research and people I would have lunch with there uh, did research on uh, fatigue that goes on in the aviation industry. I left there and came back to Washington, D.C. I'm a native Washingtonian and have been working for the NTSB since 1999. There I am involved with uh, the processing and evaluation of responses to our safety recommendations. And I've been doing that for about 25 years. Great, thanks. Jana. Hey, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, Well, actually I've been working at NTSB for about 20 years now, but before that, Um, I first got interested in fatigue in when I was in college where believe it or not, I, uh, one of my college professors had a class and played a recording, some recordings from an NTSB investigated crash of the Exxon Valdez, which at the time, uh, that tanker was the biggest oil spill that our nation had experienced. And Mm -hmm. even though the news media had reported Uh, a lot about the master's use of alcohol, my professor pointed out that it was the third mate on that ship who was sleep deprived. And that was really what the NTSB had determined was the probable cause. And that class and that professor really inspired me um, not only to be really interested in the area of fatigue, but to be really interested in the National Transportation Safety Board. And so um, I ended up pursuing drowsy driving related research as a graduate student and was fortunate enough to be hired by NTSB um, as a researcher. And since I've been at NTSB, I've been a researcher, a crash investigator, and now I work in our Office of Research and Engineering doing uh, research across the modes. Thanks, Jana. And Dennis, your first time here on the podcast. Tell us about yourself. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, like Jana, have been with the NTSB for about 20 years. Uh, I have an educational background in industrial and systems engineering. Uh, 
with a focus in human factors. Uh, my graduate work was all in the area of driving. And after a, a short stint as a contractor, uh, the NTSB's mission really drew me. Uh, so I, I got lucky enough to be hired, and here I am. Um, my educational background did cover fatigue, but I, I found that it has much more of a, of a front position when you're investigating a crash than it did just in my general education. Sure. Great. Thanks. As Stephanie mentioned, this week is the National Sleep Foundation's annual Drowsy Driving Prevention Week. And the theme this year is Sleep First, Drive Alert. And they are highlighting the importance of prioritizing sleep and reminding people to drive when they are alert and refreshed. Before we jump into sleep and its impact on transportation safety, can you describe what good sleep health means and why we should all care about it? Sure. Good sleep health means at its most basic level, making sure you're getting the best sleep you can. And bad sleep can be dangerous. Uh, it can be as impactful as no sleep. But good sleep health means that you're getting the right amount of sleep. It means you're getting sleep of good quality and you're keeping a consistent schedule. And how does we hear about circadian rhythms? How does circadian rhythms factor into good sleep health? Well, the circadian rhythms are a way of describing that the body operates on cycles. And these cycles create times when the body is more ready to do certain activities, be up and moving, be awake, and times when it's ready to do other activities, for example, sleep. And that circadian rhythm helps us uh, if we're doing activities in line with that, we're better at them, we're more focused, we're more effective. And if we're going against that, that's difficult. And that's one of the primary reasons that something like shift work can be very difficult on the people doing it. Mm. And we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, this past weekend was daylight savings time. And and so we gained an hour. And I'm curious, how much does a time change actually affect our, our daily lives? Well, I can <clears throat> weigh in on that. Um, it's, it's actually really interesting, the amount of research that's been done on the time changes. Um, and I can note that the American Academy of Sleep Medicine actually put out a paper on this in 2020 that summarized uh, a lot of the work that's been done over the years. Um, they talk about impacts on public health um, and safety impacts of the time shift. And, and germane to our uh, NTSB interest is that more than one study has shown that there's an uptick in traffic crashes uh, in the days following the change, um, particularly the spring change when many people lose an hour of sleep. Mm -hmm. And to take this a step further, this is the last time that we're going to be going through one of these time changes. Um, do you, you know, well, I guess in, in the spring, we'll spring forward one more time and then daylight savings is essentially over for the United States. Um, are you all as sleep experts concerned about this around transportation? I would say if, if anything probably changes where you have to change an hour overnight are more likely to be detrimental. I mean, it's, it's not unlike jet lag. So mm -hmm. when you change from one uh, time zone to another. I think many people have experienced that where um, you feel a little off, you don't get as much sleep. Um, and so basically 
the time change is kind of subjecting everyone to that (laughs) simultaneously. Sure. And, uh, you know, there are other social factors that are associated with that. You might oversleep, you might not set your alarm right, your commute, there might be glare during your commute the the day when it wasn't there the day before. There are a lot of other things that kind of go along with the time change besides the loss of sleep Mm -hmm. um, or the shift in sleep. But uh, personally, I, 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 I can't see any uh, fatigue downside to getting rid of it. But maybe my other comments, my fellow uh, podcasters have a different opinion. I, I think anybody who's ever uh, taken a trip like across the country or across the ocean to Europe or something like that and has suffered jet lag, mm-hmm. I think that gives you a feel for what you have personally experienced in terms of circadian disruption and it also comes about with people who work shifts, especially when the shifts change, because frequently when you work a, a, a job with uh, shift, time shifts, and you change your shift, so you go from working a normal daylight schedule to, say, working from midnight to 7 a.m., you will be very tired and very fatigued, and that is exactly the symptom of circadian disruption and i think when you we change the times that's just a little tiny movement into that area so depending on your sensitivity you may feel it there too sure well as a mom of little kids i know that daylight savings times can really mess with (laughs) with the young children um i definitely feel it a little bit as an adult but i feel it more for my kids. <laughs> I, I actually think that's a good point, Leah. And um, one thing we know is that there's a lot of individual differences in how well people can tolerate um, circadian shifts or sleep loss. Some people mm-hmm. <clears throat> are pretty resilient, um, but other people, even a minor uh, loss of sleep or circadian shift can really, um, you know, create a lot of challenges for them in the days that follow. Yeah. I agree with everything both my colleagues said. Uh, I think uh, the way to think about it is for the remaining changes, whatever problems a person or your child had in the past with that change, they're going to have. The good mm-hmm. news is in the long term, we're going to stop doing that to ourselves. Yep. Great. Fatigue is an issue that the NTSB has been long concerned with across all modes of transportation, but this discussion today, we're going to be focused on fatigue driving. And part of our investigative process includes looking at the driver's opportunity for sleep leading up to the crash. So Jana, can you talk to us about how do we determine a sleep pattern or opportunity for sleep? Certainly, Leah. So I think uh, with respect to NTSB investigations, excuse me, our uh, investigators ask two basic questions with respect to um, the potential for fatigue in any given um, event. So first of all, we want to understand if the person, like the driver or the pilot, in this case, we'll talk about drivers since we're focusing on highway, Mm -hmm. was fatigued at the time that the crash took place. And then if so, the second part of that question is to say, did that fatigue contribute to the event, to the things that led to that crash? Mm -hmm. So for the first part, for the first question, we do a look back. We look back at the days leading to that event. And we basically try to capture all of the 
potential things that would help us to understand that person's sleep and wake history. So we might talk to the to the individual, conduct an interview, talk to their family members, um, look at work schedules, logbooks, cell phone history. All of these things are part of a, the puzzle that we put together to try to understand when a person was awake and when they were asleep, or if we don't know when they were asleep, we at least are looking at the times so that they were awake so that we can figure out what opportunities they might have had for sleeping. Um, once we do that, we look at when that sleep um, likely took place, how long it was and when it took place. Like we were just talking about, you know, if, if the sleep opportunities were during the day, we might know that the person might not have had as good quality sleep. Mm-hmm. So we put all of that together to understand whether someone had enough sleep and what their sleep quality likely was. We also look at things like sleep health and um, potential use of alcohol or other drugs that may have contributed either to their wakefulness during their wake times or interfered with their sleep. Mm -hmm. So we look at all of that to make this general determination of whether the person was likely impaired by fatigue at the time of the event. And if they were, then we're looking at things like, what were the circumstances of that event? Are, were, there, were there things that were related to the driver or were there perhaps things related to the vehicle or the environment? If it was related to the driver and perhaps it was something like a slowed reaction time or a lack of response to an obstacle, that's where we're kind of putting it all together and thinking that maybe fatigue was part of the cause of that particular crash. Sure. The NTSB has said that tackling the problem of fatigue and transportation will require a comprehensive approach that focuses on research, education, training technology, sleep disorder treatment, hours of service regulations, and on and off duty scheduling policies and practices. So for hours of service regulations, on and off duty, um, they seem to be controversial issues as it relates to commercial vehicle operations and personnel. How much of an impact do hours of service regulations and scheduling policies have on safety? And I'm going to direct that to Jana. Well, that's a great question, Leah. Um, I think that what I can say about hours of service uh, regulations, which are the uh, regulations that we see for, for example, commercial drivers that uh, dictate the Uh, maximum amount of driving or on-duty periods that they can work or the minimum amount of off-duty period that they have to be allowed, those are important foundations for safety. We really need those in place to provide that safety net so that we can be assured that employers are giving um, their drivers enough off-duty time to allow them to get the sleep that they need to drive safely. But those regulations alone are not sufficient if you consider um, you know some all of the many things that can lead to driver fatigue. So we mm-hmm. talked about you know if it if an off-duty time is in the middle of the day, it might be very difficult for a driver to get good quality sleep or if they don't have a good sleep environment. Um, so there there's on top of that the need for of course drivers to take advantage of their off-duty time to take the responsibility to get good quality sleep. And there are a lot of other factors that are needed on top of the um, safety net of regulations to ensure that people can be getting the rest they need at the time they need to stay safe when they're driving. Sure. And just kind of as a reflection, uh, when I've flown before, um, every once in a while, there's a delay in the flight. 
And sometimes there's been such a delay that once the uh, once the time comes that we're able to board the flight, they ended up canceling the flight because they say, oh, the pilot or the um, the flight attendants have exceeded their hours of service and they are no longer allowed to continue to work. How come this is not happening in the commercial trucking industry? Is this is this something that's discussed? Is this something that's brought up? Um, can you talk a little bit about that and maybe why why this happens in aviation and it doesn't happen um, on our roadways? I think the one of the one of the simplest answers to that would be it is a, a different regulatory environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the FAA is required or is permitted or can establish different regulations than say the FMCSA could. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, at the end, as Janice said, those regulations that have been established for commercial drivers are really just the ground floor, the basement sure. maybe. Sure. And, and there's always the question of personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a case that illustrates that very well is Cranberry, New Jersey. Uh, we had a motor carrier and a driver the motor carrier gave the driver uh, more than sufficient time off to allow him to properly rest and be in compliance with the regulations. Uh, but it was the driver's personal decision to drive from New Jersey to Georgia for a family event mm-hmm. and then return and go straight from driving from Georgia to New Jersey into his truck and start making deliveries. And uh, ultimately, uh, he was fatigued and failed to see stopped traffic and created a uh, had a crash, uh, ended up killing, uh, I believe at least one person and there was serious injuries. So we can create a regulatory framework, but what we have to do and what I hope this podcast is doing is educating the public that that's where they start. And then mm-hmm. we need to give them the tools and the ability to carry that forward and take responsibility for their own fatigue or the fatigue of their family members and realize we can do this and we can get better and safer. Yeah. And just to touch on, you know, our goal is zero fatalities. And um, this, hap- this this goal touches on everything from fatigue to impairment to distraction to seatbelts. So when we talk about zero, we, we want to definitely remind everybody that it's a total comprehensive and that a lot of different partners, organizations, et cetera, can really make an impact in this area by implementing uh, these safe policies and practices. I, I wanted to sort of reinforce that idea of personal responsibility because mm-hmm. I think that applies to everybody who gets behind the wheel and drives, not just commercial drivers. You you have a responsibility when you go out on the road and you have this multi-ton piece of machinery around you to make sure that you are aware enough and awake enough to control it and that you haven't been sleep deprived because you said, well, I'll just push this one time. I wanted mm-hmm. to see this last side on my vacation before I decided to return home, or I had to deal with this family issue. If you didn't get enough rest, you're not fit to drive. Mm-hmm. That's a great point, Jeff, that, that fatigue is, is a human constant. It doesn't just happen to pilots or commercial drivers or tugboat captains or railroad engineers. Every human being gets fatigued, and we all have to remember that when we're doing something that, that's risky, that's potentially dangerous, like driving. That's why they say operating heavy machinery. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I think I think that's a great point. It reminds me of um, when my kids were small and we were debating about, you know, when to drive to to get to see the grandparents. And sometimes it was tempting to try to drive through the night because that's when the kids would be sleeping and we wouldn't have to worry about keeping them entertained. But mm -hmm. but we knew that the risk of, you know, driving drowsy um, was you know, not worth it. <laughs> so we, you know, had to think about either planning those trips during the day or having a having a backup plan where we were going to stop a hotel on the way so that we could sleep. And to that point, Jana, and just along the lines of the circadian rhythms discussion that we had before is that I, I would, I would, and I, I don't have the data to back this up and I'm sure you will, I'm sure you will, um, Correct me, but it seems that a lot of the crashes that we investigate that are around fatigue happen extremely early, like between three and six in the morning. Um, but I might be wrong, but I just remember reading a lot of reports where a lot of them happen, you know, very early in the morning when perhaps a shift is getting close to the end. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I'll defer to you to, to tell me if I'm right or wrong. <laughs> Oh, that's a great observation. I mean, uh, you know, we we we've 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 used this term circadian rhythm, but like, what does that really mean? And and you know, one one takeaway is those early morning hours, those times kind of in the you know the wee hours between you know three and seven a.m. That that's when our brains are programmed to be sleeping, really. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and so. Trying to do, you know, most anything during those hours and particularly trying to drive is very, uh, you know, very risky. And for a lot of people, you know, if you just finished a work shift where you had been awake on duty for 8, 10, 12 hours, mm -hmm. and then it's that, that time of day, that confluence of being awake for a long time and then driving during those early morning hours, you're right. A lot of our very um, severe catastrophic crashes that we've investigated over the years have taken place right with that, that set of circumstances. Yeah. Uh, we talked a little bit uh, about um, the policies involved um, in commercial trucking. And we at the NTSB talk a lot about fatigue risk management programs. Can, can Jana, I think, uh, can you talk to us about what does an effective um, fatigue risk management system or program include? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. You know, we've we've talked about some of the, the elements of it all, already. Mm -hmm. um, you know, having scheduling policies that are thinking about what people's sleep needs are is, is one step there that an employer can take. You know, but there's other things too, um, you know, providing training and education, not just to the drivers, but to everybody in the organization about the risks of uh, fatigue and how it can impact, can give that kind of level of understanding. So for example, to dispatchers who are making work assignments or to managers so that they know, and then helping the uh, employees or drivers learn about good sleep practices, how to take advantage of their off-duty time um, to practice good sleep hygiene. Those are all important. Other things that I'll mention that are uh, valuable components of fatigue risk management programs 
are the focus on sleep health. So many employers have sleep disorder screening programs where they can um, help their employees to evaluate whether they may be at risk for a sleep disorder like obstructive sleep apnea or insomnia. And if they do, uh, if they, if they are screened positively, then providing the type of support and treatment that might be needed to address those sleep concerns. And then the last thing I'll mention um, that I think is really a great thing for employers to consider is the concept of having a policy where uh, workers can call in fatigued, just like sure. a worker can call in sick if they mm-hmm. um, have an illness to allow for a policy where somebody can honestly call in and say, hey, I didn't get enough sleep last night for whatever reason, you know, my my child was sick or, you know, there was noise outside and I don't feel safe to drive and to have a policy, a non-punitive policy that allows sure. um, safety sensitive employees to call in fatigued, I think is, a, is, a, is an also an important component. Jana, I know that when you just mentioned the safety, uh, someone that's working in a safety sensitive position, that is something that that we have said a lot in our investigations and some of our recommendations, this idea of someone who's in a safety sensitive position. And I think we all would automatically think that someone who's driving would fall into that or operating, you know, another transportation vehicle. But what are some of the other other jobs within, you know, the highway, the road safety community that we would consider someone who falls into that category? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point, Stephanie. So, I mean, even people who maintain highway vehicles, like if you think about if you think about all of the different aspects of um, system safety, it's really important. You know, we've had maybe not in the highway realm. I know we in our in the aviation realm, we've we've done investigations of uh, maintainers, for instance, or air traffic controllers, people who are important parts of the transportation safety system um, who play an important role. It's really important for them to have the same type of um, attention to sleep health and shift work and circadian issues to allow them to be well-rested when they're doing their work because an error that is made um, during for example, vehicle maintenance can manifest itself, you know, weeks or months later, sure. and and it could have been due to somebody who was um, fatigued during during their work shift. And I'll def- defer. Dennis may have other examples from our investigations. Thanks, Janet. Yeah, um, the only thing I'd add is is anyone who's working around an active roadway. So that would be construction workers, crossing guards, police fire, EMS, uh, the litter crews that are picking up the garbage or the guys mowing the side of the interstate, uh, they all also need to be aware of their fatigue because that that environment in and of itself, it can be risky. It can be dangerous. And by virtue of putting yourself in there, you're operating in a, in a safety critical position. Uh, and so are you and I when we drive our cars, because mm-hmm. not only are we responsible for ourselves, and our passengers, be they our friends, our children, but we have a certain responsibility too to to everyone else on the road. So you have to if you're in that environment, anyone that's touching on that environment or in that environment should consider themselves safety sensitive and and be aware of their fatigue. I think it's important too to realize that 
when people hear about being fatigued, that doesn't, it's not limited to only when you feel like you're about to fall asleep. Mm. Just because you are not getting enough rest in ways, and, and one of the things that happens is you become less aware of how fatigued you are, the more fatigued you become. Mm-hmm. You, your, your mind just is not working right. And I'll give you one good example of that was an accident that we investigated in New York City in a part of New York City called Queens Village. There was a roadway gang. They were doing work on the rails and they were running trains through that area. And the procedure was supposed to be, there's a guy who gives a warning to the work crew and the work crew gets off of the track as the train is approaching so that the train can pass by without hitting anybody. This particular guy had been working just ungodly amounts of overtime, hadn't had hardly any sleep in the previous week because of that. And where did he move to to get out of the way of the train? Right onto the active track that the train was coming to. Hmm. Because he was so tired, he thought he was moving to safety when in fact he put himself in harm's way. And I think that's a good illustration of when you're fatigued, you don't recognize that you're fatigued. And when you're fatigued, you will do dangerous stuff that when you're tired and well-rested, you would never conceive of doing. But when you're fatigued, it seems like the right thing to do. Sure. I, I teach my children who are, some of whom are drivers and some of whom are becoming drivers, that fatigue is sneaky. And that by the time they feel tired, they've already blown through several stages of bad performance. Sure. If if they're tired enough to feel tired, it's not, well, I can stretch it out. That's pull over now territory <laughs> because it does. It sneaks up on you. Mm-hmm. Since we are talking about <laughs> driving and things things that you can do uh, when you do feel fatigued, Dennis, what advice do you have, have for your, your children or anybody that like you said, by the time you realize that you're too tired to be behind the wheel, it's it's probably a little too late. What what could you do or should you do? That would be the, the first thing is that if you feel tired, you need to stop driving. Whether, uh, you know, you can have a friend drive you, there's somebody uh, with you, a co-driver or a friend that could take over the driving as long as they're not fatigued. Sure. Um, there are some fatigue countermeasures. Um, ultimately, the really best one is sleep. Mm. So if your schedule allows, pull over somewhere safe and take a nap. Um, you can do some other things. You could combine it with with caffeine. And there's literature out there that I don't want to go into in the podcast because we get down sure, in the weeds. Absolutely. Yeah. But in, as a short answer, stop whatever task it is you're doing that could be dangerous if you feel tired and and do what you can to get some rest. And if you can't, have someone else take over that task. It really, really, really is worth it uh, if you are not doing it while you're tired. One of the interesting controversies around some of our recommendations has been what's known as a napping policy. (laughs) So if you are in a safety critical situation, you obviously don't want to be napping while you're driving a vehicle, but will your employer allow you to pull over to the side of the road and just take a nap for 30 minutes? A 30-minute nap will actually give you a lot of restored performance, not not enough to continue driving for the rest of the day, but enough to get to a place where you can safely pull over. But 
and probably everybody is familiar with it, you know, many places you'll be fired the moment they find out that you're sleeping on the job. Mm-hmm. It, it really ties back into the fatigue management system that we were talking about, that everybody, if it's your employer, everybody has to be involved. Everybody has to buy in and your employer has to let you do what Jeff suggested and take a nap. And it, in every metric I'm aware of, that's the smart decision. Business-wise, money-wise, people-wise, the, the cost of one fatigue accident can mm-hmm. pay for a fatigue management program for a year right. or more. Gianna, you mentioned um, obstructive sleep apnea and screening for, for OSA um, when we were talking about the fatigue uh, risk management program, how screening for um, different medical um, conditions that we know can contribute to fatigue or, or lead to fatigue. Jeff or, or Dennis, can one of you tell us a little bit more about obstructive sleep apnea? Um, and I know that often, in, in unfortunately, in some of our commercial uh, vehicle investigations, we often say OSA contributed or an undiagnosed um, OSA uh, contributed to the cause of crash or caused um, a crash to occur. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and, and how that is a contributing factor? I, I'd love to. Uh, <laughs> because this is an issue near and dear to my heart. Uh, OSA stands for obstructive sleep apnea. And and really what that means in simple terms is you stop breathing during the night and you you stop breathing during the night because your your airway becomes obstructed. You get into really deep sleep, everything relaxes and everything collapses and now you can't breathe. So what the body does is it wakes you up. Uh, some of the listeners in the podcast may be very familiar with that experience. You know, you're waking up, you you were dreaming, you feel like you can't breathe. That's the extreme case. Even in minor cases, it wakes you up enough that everything tightens back up. But what it's doing mm-hmm. is disturbing your sleep. So that's the danger of, of obstructive sleep apnea. If you stop, you're stopping breathing or getting less oxygen and the body's disrupting the sleep cycle to an effect to keep you alive. And as you said, it's prevalent in the trucking industry. Uh, I'd argue it's probably prevalent in the population. And what do we do with it? Well, the great news is there's a number of ways to treat it. The most common would be CPAP. I'm I'm sure people have heard that abbreviation. That's continuous positive airway pressure. And basically, you wear a mask hooked to a machine that introduces air into the mask, and that keeps your airway from collapsing. And I said this is an issue near and dear to my heart because about 10 years ago, oh, I was, I was having a terrible time. I was tired all the time. I had no idea what was going on. And keep in mind, I'd been at the safety board investigating auto accidents for 10 years at this point. Mm-hmm. Went to my doctor, scheduled the sleep study. Oh, look, I have sleep apnea. Hooked me up to the machine. And I can tell all the listeners the second day I used it. I got to my office at our headquarters building and I sat down and something was different and I couldn't figure out what I sat there, I think for 10 minutes. And I finally realized the two block walk from the train station to my desk didn't exhaust me. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to sit and wait 10 or 15 minutes to get my energy back. So to anyone listening who thinks they might have sleep apnea, please talk to your doctor, please get a sleep study. They're, they're cheap. They're covered by insurance. The treatment is well-tested and proved. And, and 
for me and for most everyone else I've ever talked to, CPAP machine makes a lot of difference. Mm-hmm. And for the commercial drivers, I know in the industry, haven't talked to guys there and, and ladies, there's a lot of concern that if you tell your employer, oh, I have sleep apnea, you're going to lose your job. Mm-hmm. My answer to that is the good employers will help you get tested and get a machine and get one that if you're an overnight driver, you can take with you in the sleeper berth. Because again, the cost of that program is paid for if they avoid one drowsy driving accident. Mm. One. So please, if you're a commercial driver, uh, you can Google the, the risk factors and everything. If you have some of the risk factors or you're not sure, talk to your doctor and get checked out. The worst thing that happens is they help you get healthier because that's the other sure. side too. You're sleeping better and your health will improve. That's the worst case scenario. So, and now I'll, I'll stop. As I said, I could go on for a while because it's very near and dear to my heart, but I will leave it there. Well, we appreciate you sharing your your personal experience, Dennis. I think, you know, that's, that's part of, um, you know, the discussion that we're having here on the podcast. And I think the point of of what the National Sleep Foundation does is is right as to calling attention to these, you know, different different medical conditions that can contribute to fatigue and drowsiness. And uh, the more we can hear from people who not only investigate the crashes and make the recommendations, but who who live live through what we're talking about, I think is is helpful. I think there's a um, a classic study about the benefits of sleep apnea of of getting it treated. It was done by Schneider Trucking Company. You, you may have seen them on the road. Their, their trailers are always painted orange. But Schneider, and they did this not as a safety uh, goal. They did it with the idea of improving the lives of their drivers, arranged for all of their drivers to be able to get for free a sleep, ap- uh, yeah, sleep apnea screening and a uh, treatment for that. They did that not with the idea of saving money, not with the idea of avoiding accidents, just to make their drivers' lives better. The result of that was their costs went down. It cost them less money by making the investment in the sleep apnea program. That happened because Schneider Trucking pays their own health insurance, and the health of their drivers improved dramatically after they were all treated for sleep apnea, if they had it, and all of the other health problems that come along, heart disease, uh, other types of trauma industry, uh, there's no end to the complications of sleep apnea. They were all markedly reduced, so they had to spend less money paying for the health insurance claims of their drivers and families. Uh, Jeff, we have made... um various recommendations for um, medical fitness and obstructive sleep apnea. Can you talk a little bit about those, how long we've been making those recommendations and, and what it is that we're actually asking for? The, um, the primary thing we ask for is the identification of sleep apnea among transportation operators. And we've made them in all modes of transportation and the treatment when they're so diagnosed and monitoring by the employer to make sure that the employee is is doing it. We've been making those uh, recommend, I think the first ones were in 1997. Mm -hmm. 
since that time. The screening criteria, this is not what would say for sure that you have sleep apnea, but rather the simple things that you would do that say it is worthwhile being evaluated by a sleep uh, doctor are very simple. I think they are, is your body mass index, in other words, are you fat? Is it 30 or above? Is it, uh, do you have two or more medications for high blood pressure? And is your neck size above a size 17, uh, 17 inches in circumference? And when I thought that, I said, I expect everybody to read your shirt size. And somebody slapped me upside the head and said, that's your shirt size, Jeff. Um, so hopefully those three things are known by any doctor whose office you walk into and sees you. I'll give you a personal story. I go to a, my personal physician is very health conscious and I have an annual wellness visit and he does all sorts of examinations that are not normally done. Well, one year I went in there and there was a questionnaire he wanted me to fill out and I started filling it out and working in fatigue at the NTSB, I said, hmm, it's the Epworth uh, drowsiness survey. And I thought, well, I have no problems with this. So I filled it out and gave it to him and thought, oh, that'd be fine. And he looked at that and he said, I think we need to get a sleep study for you, Jeff. And I thought, you do? So um, I was probably too close to the situation to realize that I needed it, but I had that done. It was a fairly simple thing to do. And uh, in about two weeks, I will be starting on the CPAP machine myself. So I hope I have the similar health enrichment that Dennis has experienced. I am sure you will. I'm sure you will. Well, I'm happy for both of you that you got um, diagnosed. But I think, you know, one of the real takeaways here is that even people who know about this condition may not be aware that they have it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the the point where you were saying, D- Dennis, of, you know, feeling tired during the day, certainly that is something that if uh, that people can can be aware of. I guess other things I've heard of is you know if your if your spouse is always complaining about your noisy sleep, uh, that's another uh, that's another potential sign or symptom. Um, but 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 it's but I've heard more than one person tell a story similar to Dennis's um, and Jeff's where they didn't know. And then, but once they were diagnosed, it really was life-changing for them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we've talked a lot about uh, sleep and fatigue in the professional and transportation environment, but uh, what can we do as, you know, for myself, let's say, um, I am just a regular, typically an office worker, um, but uh, what can I do to enhance and improve my sleep or a teacher or, you know, someone who works at the grocery store, just basically um, a non-professional truck driver, let's say, a regular car driver? Well, I think that one of the things that, uh, you know, you common, we commonly talk about is just how much sleep does a, an average person need? And so I think that the general consensus in the sleep community is that a normal adult needs about seven to nine hours of sleep per night, um, ideally at night, to um, be well-rested. And there's a lot of things, you know, there are a lot of people out there who find it hard to get that 
amount of sleep per night or people say, well, I don't really need it. I just keep, catch up sure. on the weekends. <laughs> mm. um, but really um, investing in sleep, investing, I really feel like sleep is a, actually quite a wonderful thing. <laughs> and, I agree. <laughs> and, and, uh, and most of us know that, right? But it doesn't necessarily mean that we take the steps that we need to to uh, create an environment or create habits where we're doing that regularly. And that takes discipline, right? Because sometimes there's, you have a busy life. There's this one more thing you want to get done. Um, a lot of us have, you know, uh, by virtue of the pandemic, we have our offices right in our bedrooms. Mm. Um, so that's, you know, the idea that people can set a routine and unplug from technology and create a, a sleep conducive environment. Um, if needed, see uh, a professional about your sleep if you think that you might, uh, if you might have a sleep disorder. But, but for people who are generally healthy people who don't have sleep disorders, just making good sleep habits of sleeping in a, a nice, comfortable environment keeping your sleep environment away from the places where you do other things, you know, they say, you know, uh, those are all steps that we can take to try to ensure that we are getting the sleep that we need to be healthy and safe. Mm -hmm. When we think of um, drowsy driving, those of us who uh, work in this space know, unfortunately, that young, young drivers um, are at great risk of being some of the drivers that tend to fall asleep behind the wheel. And I know that some of us on the call have teens and some children who are approaching <laughs> the teen years. And Jana, you mentioned the idea of catching up with sleep on the weekend. And I think those of us that have teens know that that is kind of their plan usually is that they'll <laughs> make it through a little sleep during the, the school week and try and catch up on the weekends or even thinking of college students as well. Um, how much how much sleep do do teens need or or young adults um, need to be healthy? Well, adolescence is kind of an interesting time um, for sleep. Um, children need more more sleep than adults, um, and in adolescence, uh, usually kids undergo a, a bit of a, a shift where they just naturally, their circadian rhythm has them wanting to stay up later and sleep later in the morning. And so what you'll see, for example, is some school districts are thinking about this and thinking about having later school start times for this very reason, because of um, children's need for sleep and, and their need for sleep in those morning hours. Um, so, so adolescents do need a little more sleep but then there are other, I think, social factors that can really lead to um, sleep deprivation in, in young adults. And, you know, some of those things are related to devices. You know, mm -hmm. I in, in our household, you know, we have a rule that devices don't go in the bedroom, that they, you know, when it's sleep time, the device is plugged in and charging in a separate space because we want to make sure that um, things like cell phone use doesn't interfere um, with our kids' sleep. Um, I know, uh, at least for one of my teens, um, you know, it's always a, an ongoing discussion about the use of caffeine. 
I think that, you know, a lot of kids now are drink, using energy drinks or drinking sodas that have caffeine. And so I think it's also important for them to know um, how those, uh, how caffe- caffeinated drinks can interfere with sleep. Um, I know I'm not the only one with teens on the call. So I, Dennis, I know you have some, some young drivers in your household. I, I do. And, and uh, I can say that we do something similar. Uh, my wife is a, a little bit more tech savvy. And for uh, some of the children, uh, the router stops letting their device connect to the internet after a certain time. Sure. Uh, it's about an hour before bedtime to allow them to start to focus on going to sleep. And I, I don't make them do anything particular in that hour other than I want you to be quiet. If, if you want to read a book, as long as it's a real book and not screen time, that's fine with me. Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so I think you're right, right on for controlling devices. The only other thing I would say was, was try to work with them on a routine. Like Jana said, they're, they're shifting. They know it. Um, just talk to them and, and they're, and let them know, Hey, I, I'm trying, but there are some hard things we can't move. We can't move the start of the school day. It, it is where it is. So, what strategies can we have to work with that? Uh, I think a schedule and consistency, and like everything else with being a parent, you're just going to have to repeat it a few million times. Uh, <laughs> it, it'll eventually sink in, I think. But it, you just it, what I have found works for me is just talk to them normally, explain the situation, brainstorm with them. And generally, uh, I think most kids, when approached that way, would be, open to working with you because you're coming from a place of concern and it's an issue. And I bet every, the, every teenager, every parent who has a teenager, ask your kids, particularly if they're driving age, I bet every one of them knows someone who says they fell asleep or almost ran off the road or God forbid actually got into an accident. Hmm. It's really, it's out there. And if you approach them, letting them know that that's out there, They'll generally be responsive, I think. Sure. I know when I, uh, when my oldest son was driving, you know, I talked to him about not drinking and driving and not using his phone while he was driving and not having a bunch of peers in the car. But honestly, one thing I never talked to him about was the idea of drowsy driving. It wasn't until I started talking with Jana and some of our other colleagues that I realized, you know, kind of what, what a danger that really was to their safety. And I think, you know, my son was an athlete and as a parent, I was really excited when he got his license and could you know, drive home from those late practices or, or things like that. And I think uh, I do not, I did not realize at the time that I was actually, you know, kind of unknowingly putting him at risk by not considering those things of how, you know, what time had he gotten up in the morning and what had his day already been like by the time it was eight or nine o'clock in the evening, and then he was going to be driving, you know, driving home from an event. And so, you know, I know it's, it's band and swim and all of these other activities that the kids can be involved in. So would just say as as families are talking about those those distracted driving and the and the impaired driving that we really make sure to talk to our kids about drowsy driving too. We are getting to the end of our podcast, and so I want to offer our guests some closing uh, a moment for some closing thoughts before we um, before we end. So I'm going to first start off with Jeff. I I want to just sort of repeat again that. 
if you are yawning and sleepy and feel like you're about to fall asleep, then definitely you're fatigued and tired and you need to do something about it. But just because you think I'm awake and alert, you may well not be if you haven't had enough sleep recently. And don't fool yourself into thinking that if you haven't slept or you didn't get enough sleep in the last night, it's okay because you don't feel tired at the moment. You are fatigued and your mind's not going to be working the way that it should and the way that it needs to. Thanks, Jeff. Dennis? I would like to tell everybody listening, thanks for listening. And if you're worried about fatigue in your life or your kids or your spouse, the great news is there's plenty of resources out there. And the small changes, just even having a conversation can make a huge impact. And it's not expensive or difficult to address fatigue. You just have to think about it and then make some small changes, some smart choices. And uh, I appreciate everybody tuning in to learn that. We're heading to zero. Thank you, Dennis. And Jana. Thanks. Well, I would just say, you know, working at NTSB and seeing um, some of the consequences of drowsy driving or fatigue in transportation operations up close, you know, really is a wake up call to think about how important this issue is. Um, And I think that, you know, the comments that that Jeff and Dennis had about, you know, you know, this is something that we all can take steps to prevent. Um, If we think ahead, if we're um, thinking about how we're feeling in the moment, but also thinking about, you know, our next trip, our next commute and planning ahead so that we can always be uh, the most alert we can when we're out there um, transporting ourselves or others. Thanks, Jana. Stephanie, how about you? Do you have any final thoughts? I do. So uh, at NTSB, we advocate for the safe system approach. Um, And I think our conversation here has pointed to different opportunities throughout the transportation system, whether you're the driver or a business owner, um, that you you can play a role in in preventing um, drowsy driving. And so I would just encourage anyone that, that sees a place um, for them themselves in this conversation that they look for the opportunities that they have to educate the people that they're employing or their own families and friends uh, to be part of, like Dennis said, getting to zero road deaths and serious injuries. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you all for joining us today for our conversation about the importance of sleep and the impact it can have on safe driving. I want to remind our listeners that it is Drowsy Driving Prevention Week which is hosted by the National Sleep Foundation. And we at the NTSB also agree that it is important to sleep first, drive alert. We hope that you carry this message forward with your daily life, get a good night's rest, take opportunities for naps when you need them. I finally want to thank Stephanie Shaw for being my fantastic co-host. And I want to thank James Anderson for being the great producer that he is. Thank you to our listeners. And we will talk to you at the next episode. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Scene at NTSB. Subscribe to and like us on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And don't forget, you can always find us at ntsb.gov. Thank you and bye. Bye.